Let's pray. Father God, we come before you thankful that we can, that we can boldly approach the throne of God Almighty. Lord God, we give to you our heads and our hearts now. We pray that your word would affect them deeply and make us, mold us, shape us more like Christ and to have hearts and, and eyes for others. Love for them just as you've loved us. We pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. One word that never comes to my mind when I think of loving others is assumption. Right? Uh, have you ever been the victim of assumption? Someone working from, from a single bit of information that might be true assumes something else to be true, when in all reality it could very well be far from it. Or perhaps, just maybe, you have been the one guilty of doing the assuming. Yeah? Dear, we don't have to eat dinner. We're going to a party. And everybody knows that every party has food. Yeah. Usually it's good food, and we'll get to pig out on all the stuff we don't normally get to eat, right? And then you drive, get in the car, you drive over to the party, and you show up only to find out that there's a veggie platter. And everybody knows that raw broccoli is not food. That's when your wife lovingly whispers in your ear as she leans over and says, I told you to call and find out. She does this because the antithesis of assumption is communication. The exact opposite of a, a bad assumption is going to be to communicate through it. If you don't want to be persecuted by assumption... Persecute the assumptions with communication. And this doesn't mean that people will always want to hear what we have to say. People don't always like the truth, do they? However, as we're going to see in our passage today, we are called as Christians to combat assumption with godly communication for the sake of the gospel kingdom. Uh, standing for the truth regardless of the outcome. We are called as Christians to combat assumption with godly communication for the sake of the gospel kingdom. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21, starting at verse 27. I'm going to let you sit down this time. Because I'm going to start at verse 27, and I'm just going to keep reading. Acts 21, 27, it says, When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him, Paul, in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone, everywhere, against the people, and the law, and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place, for they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, 
Word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. When they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then, who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. When he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. When there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers. I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw, and, say, and saw him saying to me, Make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, 
for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The reading of God's word. And so the passage begins. Paul is seen by some Jews from Asia. It's likely some of the same ones who participated in that riot in Ephesus uh, that drove Paul out of that area, drove Paul out of Asia. Perhaps they, they followed him to Jerusalem. Maybe they simply showed up because it was Pentecost, the time of Pentecost. Whatever the case may be, what they have to say about him is not true, is it? They say, this man is teaching against Israel, the law and the temple. And as we discussed last week, Paul didn't teach these things, did he? But all it takes, have you ever noticed that all it takes is for something to be said? And all of a sudden, it's true, right? Everybody jumps on it. Have you ever noticed that the world loves a good assumption? Just look online, right? All it takes is for something to show up on the interweb and everybody believes it. It's in black and white. It's got to be true. Somebody wrote it. You can believe everything you read on the internet. Please don't go home and teach your children that. So they get him and they say, and look! He even brought Gentiles into the temple with him. Again, not true, right? But it's an assumption, a supposition from the fact that he had been seen in the city with Trophimus. And they are eager to assume a greater story so that they can justifiably attack Paul and drag him out of the temple. According to Roman law at the time, Roman citizens, even Roman citizens, could be corporally punished, could be put to death for defiling the Jewish temple. And so they felt justified when we read in chapter 21, verse 30, then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. And so the the tribune, he who was in charge of the soldiers in Jerusalem, comes down and he comes with his own set of assumptions, doesn't he? He shows up and says, aren't you the Egyptian then that led those 4,000 guys out in the desert? Raise a revolt? All these assumptions, all these attacks upon Paul. How do we respond when these kinds of assumptions, these kinds of attacks come upon us? Have you ever been the victim of an assumption? It's simply not true. What what do we feel in our hearts when somebody says something like that about us? Spreading lies about who we are or what we've done. We feel indignant, right? Oh, oh yeah? You're going to say that about me? I'll put you in your place. You don't even know what you're talking about. I'll show you your ignorance by throwing it right back in your face. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, baby, right? And then we go home in the quiet of our room and we post funny, sarcastic memes on Facebook just to show how stupid they are. You would think that at the moment, in the time, Paul would have been looking at the tribune and saying, do you see what's going on here, tribune? These people are crazy. They, 
as you can see in here, some say one thing, others say another. They don't even know what they're talking about. They're ignorant, maladjusted rioters. Pay them no attention, Tribune. Just look at them, the big babies, right? That's how, that's how I would want to respond. Get them back. They're liars. But that's not how Paul responds, is it? That's not what Paul does. Sometimes we, of course, learn a lot from what is here before us. And sometimes we can learn from what isn't there. What does Paul not do here? He doesn't attack them back, does he? What what does Paul not do here? What is the great Christian assumption And I'm pretty sure we're all guilty of it, even me. Look at how they're dressed. They've got tattoos over half their face, and listen to how they talk. All that filthy language coming out of their mouths. They go to that bar, or or they hold up that pro-choice sign. They, They voted for the other candidate. They don't want to hear about Christ. They don't want to know Jesus. They won't accept him. So why should I bother saying anything? That's an assumption. That they don't need Christ. That's a horrible assumption, especially because we know the difference that they certainly do. Paul doesn't start from that assumption, does he? He doesn't start from that premise. He he keeps his eye on the goal. In every situation, with every person, Paul remembers what God has done in his own life. What God has called him to, and why God has left him here. Why God brought him to Jerusalem to go through this very thing. Why God has left every single person in this room, here on this earth, in the communities where we live, and in this community here in Alden where we worship God. God has left us here for a reason. Chapter 22, verses 14 and 15. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. Paul is called to share Christ with everyone. Not just the nice ones and the ones who, who love him. Not just the ones who are our own age and ethnicity. Not just the ones who would do things the way that we would do or vote the way we would vote. There is no excuse here, and there is no caveat. It doesn't say, Paul, you've heard a voice from the Lord, and you will be his witness to the good ones. You'll be his witness to the ones that you see fit to enter into heaven, and you just go ahead and be a filter, Paul, for for God. It doesn't say anything like that. Everyone. That's what it says. Without excuse, everyone. 
And Paul knew that call of God upon his life, that, that Acts chapter 1, verse 8 call that we've been hearing about from the beginning of Acts and we'll hear all the way through the end of Acts to testify to the person and works of Jesus Christ, proclaiming his gospel kingdom to a world that doesn't love Christ because Jesus died for the ones who don't love him. While we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. While we still shook our fists in his face and said, we don't want anything to do with you, God, Christ died for us. Still found in our sin and transgression, Jesus loves us. Paul understood that every single person there, even the screaming, hate-filled ones, are dear enough to God that he would send his son for them. Think about Paul. Even the murderous persecutor of the church, Jesus came and died for him. Even the lustful ones, or the liars, or the ones who don't honor their parents, the one who steals, Jesus died for them. So instead of allowing himself, Paul, to be persecuted by these assumptions, Paul persecutes the assumptions with communication. And not the negative communication that we all feel like putting out there when we feel personally attacked, but as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Or as James reminds us in chapter 1 of his book, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I, I can pretty much guarantee you from, from this scripture that when we get angry because we have been personally attacked and we think we should be getting back at people, it is not the anger of God. And we aren't, we aren't angry because of anything having to do with the Lord. We are angry because we are personally hurt, right? And we want to get back at them. Paul doesn't do that, but, but speaking the truth in love, Paul communicates with respect he communicates with wisdom and discernment. And he communicates with, with simple truth. He uses respect, wisdom and discernment, and truth. Attacked, beaten, chained, and hauled off by soldiers, Paul uses words of respect. Verse 37 of chapter 21 as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? The phrase that Paul uses there is a very polite, formal Greek. It's something like, Is it permitted? Recognizing the tribune's authority, even as a, a, a soldier from Rome, but he recognizes this person's authority. He says, Is it permitted for me to speak to you? Is it proper that I should do this? He asks permission, 
very formally, very kindly, and engaging this Roman tribune in a conversation that would eventually allow him to speak to the people. And when Paul addresses the crowd, he addresses them not with spite. Paul doesn't say, you crazy people, what do you think you're doing? What does he say? Chapter 22, verse 1. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. He addresses them with affection. These people who were just beating him and wanted to kill him, he addresses them with love. Brothers and fathers, these are his beloved people of whom he one day would say, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He doesn't see them as his enemies and his attackers. He doesn't see them as stupid or moronic or whatever else we may want to call them. He sees them as God sees them. He sees them as his family. He sees them as dear to him. Do we have those eyes for people who might hate us? Do we have eyes of of love and caring for those who might jump to negative assumptions because they want a good reason to attack us? Have you ever noticed that there's people in this world who don't like you, but you have no idea why? You've done nothing. You've said they just don't like you. Do we see them as dear to God and therefore dear to ourselves? Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 and 45, it says, I say to you, and this is Jesus speaking to us, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Maybe, maybe you don't feel like you really have an enemy out there, per se. Uh, Let's take a step back from that. Maybe we don't have people who want to physically attack us. Here we are in the cushy comforts of the United States, right? But we do have, but, but do we have gospel eyes and hearts for the annoying guy? Do we have hearts of love for the person who just cut us off on the road for absolutely no reason whatsoever? You get to that red light and they're behind you and they honk at you right as before the light even turns green, right? That's, that's common practice I've found. Um, and then you get to the next light, and all of a sudden they find their way around you. And you're like, what? Where'd that come? What? It's really tempting to, to honk the horn back at them. Not that I would do that. <laughs> yes, this is a very personal example. <sighs> do we have love for those people who are just different? 
people who don't agree with us politically or, or ethically or, or those who or can't agree with us that mint and chip is the best flavor of ice cream? Am I willing to eat that yucky old cookies and cream so that I can reach them for Christ? As Christians, we are called to live differently, aren't we? And not just a, a Sunday church differently. But as we're out there in the world and we have contact with the world, do they see us, how we speak, what we do, the places we go, all these things, is it different from them? Really different. When we're attacked, do we use words of respect and love regardless of who we're talking to? Jew, Gentile, man, woman, rich, poor, we all have ontological equality before God. We all have equal value of being. And so we need to love and respect anyone who is made in the image of God. And everybody has been made in the image of God except for that annoying person, right? Everyone. We need to be those who share Christ with everyone. And there are people who come through our doors all the time. They need Christ. Maybe they're coming here because they need a family in Christ. Do we have eyes for them? Are we seeking them out? Are we willing to step outside ourselves and and do these things? It's hard, isn't it? Especially because sometimes not everybody's ready to, to listen, are they? They're, this crowd is unruly. They've, they've bought into that crazed crowd mentality, shouting and, and accusing. And, and so what does Paul do? He uses words of respect. And Paul is very cunning here. He, he's wise and discerning in how he approaches these people. To the Roman tribune, he spoke very formal and polite Greek, very educated And so he gained an audience with that tribune in that way. To the Jews, he spoke Hebrew, chapter 21, verse 40. It says, and when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people, and there was a great hush. He addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language... He became, they became even more quiet. There was a great hush, and then they became even more quiet because he spoke to them in Hebrew, and, and this got their attention. Now, a lot of scholars will say that probably Paul was speaking Aramaic here. That's the co- common Hebrew dialect that everybody and anyone in that area would have spoken on a regular basis But I'm not really sure myself where or why Aramaic would bring such a hush upon the crowd. In in verse 2 of chapter 22, it became even more quiet. There was a great hush, but it became even more quiet. He really got their attention. How could he get their attention with just common old Aramaic, right? Somehow, Paul, the man they were just trying to kill who had defiled the temple, supposedly, really grabbed their attention, didn't he? Paul, the object of their hatred, in chains and under arrest, 
carefully choosing his language, using words of respect, carefully choosing his language, carefully choosing his words, he takes control of the situation. The prisoner becomes the master of ceremonies here because of how he communicated with them. It enabled him to speak about the person and works of Jesus Christ to bear witness just as he had been called to do. His respect for others, his wisdom and discernment in his approach, it opened up the door and gave him the opportunity to speak truth. It gave him the opportunity to give his story, to give his testimony, this testimony from his own life that declares the glory of God in Christ Jesus via his own personal life experience. How God took Paul from the persecutor and murderer and made him into the eyewitness and the the testimony and the the guy who would bear it all for the sake of the way, for the sake of the person and works of Jesus Christ. Paul's testimony was a weapon. Paul's testimony was a a tool for the gospel. People can try and argue with us about philosophy, right? Everybody has their own philosophy. Or, or they can even attempt to debate reason and, and logic, can't they? You, you've heard these debates on television or on the radio. But who can argue with an eyewitness account? It's my life. I was there. I participated in it, right? This is what God has done with me. They may not like it, but they can't really argue with it, can they? It's your testimony. The only way somebody can argue with our testimony is if we allow it to become dulled by a life that doesn't really live out what we say about Jesus Christ. If we become one of those people where it's like, oh, well, you do this and that, and I know you're not a very good person, and then you go telling me about Jesus, why am I going to believe that, right? We don't want to dull our testimony because a testimony can be the greatest weapon we have for the sake of Christ, Does the truth of Christ and what he's done in our lives, does does it make that kind of difference in our lives? Has our acceptance of Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, has it changed who we are? Does it continue to change who we are? Are we becoming more like Christ and less like the world? And have we found our purpose in Christ? If we have, then let us use our testimony. Let us use that truth of what God has done in our own lives that we might cut to the heart of the matter in somebody else's life. This is the greatest tool you've got in your Christian tool bag. It's yours. Nobody can take it away from you or change it or convince you otherwise. It's personal. And it can be especially effective if those people in your sphere of influence lives, your soil, if they've been able to witness the difference between who you were and who you are. Like Paul does here when he gives his testimony, he says, the the Sanhedrin, they can testify to what they gave me permission to do and what I was off doing. I was killing people and doing it well. And now I'm willing to stand before you all not attack you back. Take whatever you're going to give me for the sake of Jesus Christ. 
There's a difference in my life. Can you see that? I, I persecuted, I approved, I watched Stephen die. Now I witness to everybody. You know how different I am. Use your testimony. I was this, now I'm this. Especially with people who know you, you, get, you can just remind them, you've seen it, you know the difference in me. And you know it to be true. Let's testify with words of respect, with wisdom and discernment. No, no matter how they are treating us, no matter how they will take it, loving them just as God has loved us in his own Son. As Christ's ambassadors, we are not called to be a people of assumption, assuming that they don't want to know about Christ. Let's just leave them where they are. We need to be those people standing at the gates of hell, grabbing at their ankles. We're not to be a people of assumption and attacks, but we're called to be different, to, to see people through a gospel lens. A gospel lens that is not easily offended because we know how much we've been forgiven. To be persecutors of assumption through godly communication, using words of respect, wisdom, and discernment to open up doors for the truth to be shared, to break out that sword of our testimony, kept sharp by the consistency of our lives in Christ. All of this for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord God, give us a, a, a strength we don't have, a wisdom and a discernment we don't have. Lord, when we are attacked and we feel personally offended, Lord, help us to take our personalness to you. To let you be the one who takes that for us and we be the ones who share your love with them. Lord, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we would have a power and a strength to be gracious that we don't have in and of ourselves. Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit to fill us up, that we would have good words that we don't have in and of ourselves. We, your wisdom, not our own, that we would walk in these things. Lord, help us to have eyes for the outsider, eyes for the lost, eyes for those who need a family in Christ. Lord, make us a tool in your hand, we pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.